Section 20 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1 by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Morning 3, Part 4. It was not long before Frau von Kerich perceived their little intrigue, which they thought very subtly managed, though it was very clumsy. Minna had suspected it from the moment when her mother had entered suddenly one day when she was talking to Jean Christophe and standing as near to him as she could, and on the click of the door they had darted apart as quickly as possible, covered with confusion. Frau von Kerich had pretended to see nothing. Minna was almost sorry. She would have liked a tussle with her mother. It would have been more romantic. Her mother took care to give her no opportunity for it. She was too clever to be anxious, or to make any remark about it. But to Minna she talked ironically about Jean Christophe, and made merciless fun of his foibles. She demolished him in a few words. She did not do it deliberately. She acted upon instinct with the treachery natural to a woman who is defending her own. It was useless for Minna to resist, and sulk, and be impertinent, and go on denying the truth of her remarks. There was only too much justification for them, and Frau von Kerich had a cruel skill in flicking the raw spot. The largeness of Jean Christophe's boots, the ugliness of his clothes, his ill-brushed hat, his provincial accent, his ridiculous way of bowing, the vulgarity of his loud-voicedness. Nothing was forgotten which might sting Minna's vanity. Such remarks were always simple and made by the way. They never took the form of a set speech, and when Minna, irritated, got upon her high horse to reply, Frau von Kerich would innocently be off on another subject. But the blow struck home, and Minna was sore under it. She began to look at Jean Christophe with a less indulgent eye. He was vaguely conscious of it, and uneasily asked her, "'Why do you look at me like that?' And she answered, "'Oh, nothing.' But a moment later, when he was merry, she would harshly reproach him for laughing so loudly. He was abashed. He never would have thought that he would have to take care not to laugh too loudly with her. All his gaiety was spoiled. Or, when he was talking absolutely at his ease, she would absently interrupt him to make some unpleasant remark about his clothes, or she would take exception to his common expressions with pedantic aggressiveness. Then he would lose all desire to talk, and sometimes would be cross. Then he would persuade himself that these ways which so irritated him were a proof of Minna's interest in him, and she would persuade herself also that it was so. He would try humbly to do better, but she was never much pleased with him, for he hardly ever succeeded. But he had no time, nor had Minna, to perceive the change that was taking place in her. Easter came, and Minna had to go with her mother to stay with some relations near Weimar. During the last week before the separation they returned to the intimacy of the first days, 
except for little outbursts of impatience minna was more affectionate than ever on the eve of her departure they went for a long walk in the park she led jean christophe mysteriously to the arbor and put about his neck a little scented bag in which she had placed a lock of her hair they renewed their eternal vows and swore to write to each other every day and they chose a star out of the sky and arranged to look at it every evening at the same time the fatal day arrived ten times during the night he had asked himself where will she be to-morrow and now he thought it is to-day this morning she is still here to-night she will be here no longer he went to her house before eight o'clock she was not up he set out to walk in the park he could not he returned the passages were full of boxes and parcels he sat down in a corner of the room listening for the creaking of doors and floors and recognizing the footsteps on the floor above him frau von karich passed smiled as she saw him and without stopping threw him a mocking good day minna came at last she was pale her eyelids were swollen she had not slept any more than he during the night she gave orders busily to the servants she held out her hand to jean christophe and went on talking to old frida she was ready to go frau von karich came back they argued about a hat-box minna seemed to pay no attention to jean christophe who was standing forgotten and unhappy by the piano she went out with her mother then came back from the door she called out to frau von karich she closed the door they were alone she ran to him took his hand and dragged him into the little room next door its shutters were closed then she put her face up to jean christophe's and kissed him wildly with tears in her eyes she said you promise you promise that you will love me always they sobbed quietly and made convulsive efforts to choke their sobs down so as not to be heard they broke apart as they heard footsteps approaching minna dried her eyes and resumed her busy air with the servants but her voice trembled he succeeded in snatching her handkerchief which she had let fall her little dirty handkerchief crumpled and wet with her tears he went to the station with his friends in their carriage sitting opposite each other jean christophe and minna hardly dared look at each other for fear of bursting into tears their hands sought each other and clasped until they hurt frau von karich watched them with quizzical good humor and seemed not to see anything the time arrived jean christophe was standing by the door of the train when it began to move and he ran alongside the carriage not looking where he was going jostling against porters his eyes fixed on minna's eyes until the train was gone he went on running until it was lost from sight then he stopped out of breath and found himself on the station platform among people of no importance he went home and fortunately his family were all out and all through the morning he wept for the first time he knew the frightful sorrow of parting an intolerable torture for all loving hearts the world is empty life is empty all is empty the heart is choked it is impossible to breathe there is mortal agony 
It is difficult, impossible to live, especially when all around you there are the traces of the departed loved one, when everything about you is forever calling up her image, when you remain in the surroundings in which you lived together, she and you, when it is a torment to try to live again in the same places the happiness that is gone. Then it is as though an abyss were opened at your feet. You lean over it. You turn giddy. You almost fall. You fall. You think you are face to face with death. And so you are. Parting is one of his faces. You watch the beloved of your heart pass away. Life is effaced. Only a black hole is left. Nothingness. Jean-Christophe went and visited all the beloved spots, so as to suffer more. Frau von Kerich had left him the key to the garden, so that he could go there while they were away. He went there that very day, and was like to choke with sorrow. It seemed to him, as he entered, that he might find there a little of her who was gone. He found only too much of her. Her image hovered over all the lawns. He expected to see her appear at all the corners of the paths. He knew well that she would not appear, but he tormented himself with pretending that she might, and he went over the tracks of his memories of love, the path to the labyrinth, the terrace carpeted with wisteria, the seat in the arbor, and he inflicted torture on himself by saying, A week ago, three days ago, yesterday it was so, yesterday she was here, this very morning. He racked his heart with these thoughts, until he had to stop, choking, and like to die. In his sorrow was mingled anger with himself for having wasted all that time and not having made use of it. So many minutes, so many hours, when he had enjoyed the infinite happiness of seeing her, breathing her, and feeding upon her, and he had not appreciated it. He had let the time go by, without having tasted to the full every tiny moment. And now? Now it was too late. Irreparable! Irreparable! He went home. His family seemed odious to him. He could not bear their faces, their gestures, their fatuous conversation, the same as that of the preceding day, the same as that of all the preceding days, always the same. They went on living their usual life, as though no such misfortune had come to pass in their midst, and the town had no more idea of it than they. The people were all going about their affairs, laughing, noisy, busy. The crickets were chirping, the sky was bright. He hated them all. He felt himself crushed by this universal egoism. But he himself was more egoistic than the whole universe. Nothing was worth while to him. He had no kindness. He loved nobody. He passed several lamentable days. His work absorbed him again automatically. But he had no heart for living. One evening, when he was at supper with his family, silent and depressed, the postman knocked at the door and left a letter for him. His heart knew the sender of it before he had seen the handwriting. Four pairs of eyes, fixed on him with undisguised curiosity, waited for him to read it, clutching at the hope that this interruption might take them out of their usual boredom. He placed the letter by his plate, 
and would not open it, pretending carelessly that he knew what it was about. But his brothers, annoyed, would not believe it, and went on prying at it. And so he was in tortures until the meal was ended. Then he was free to lock himself up in his room. His heart was beating so that he almost tore the letter as he opened it. He trembled to think what might be in it. But as soon as he had glanced over the first words, he was filled with joy. A few very affectionate words. Minna was writing to him by stealth. She called him Dear Kristlein, and told him that she had wept much, had looked at the star every evening, that she had been to Frankfurt, which was a splendid town where there were wonderful shops, but that she had never bothered about anything because she was thinking of him. She reminded him that he had sworn to be faithful to her and not to see anybody while she was away so that he might think only of her. She wanted him to work all the time while she was gone, so as to make himself famous, and her too. She ended by asking him if he remembered the little room where they had said good-bye on the morning when she had left him. She assured him that she would be there still in thought, and that she would still say good-bye to him in the same way. She signed herself, Eternally yours, eternally. And she had added a postscript, bidding him buy a straw hat instead of his ugly felt. All the distinguished people there were wearing them, a coarse straw hat with a broad blue ribbon. Jean-Christophe read the letter four times before he could quite take it all in. He was so overwhelmed that he could not even be happy, and suddenly he felt so tired that he lay down and read and re-read the letter and kissed it again and again. He put it under his pillow, and his hand was forever making sure that it was there. An ineffable sense of well-being permeated his whole soul. He slept all through the night. His life became more tolerable. He had ever-sweet, soaring thoughts of Minna. He set about answering her, but he could not write freely to her. He had to hide his feelings. That was painful and difficult for him. He continued clumsily to conceal his love beneath formulae of ceremonious politeness, which he always used in an absurd fashion. When he had sent it, he awaited Minna's reply, and only lived in expectation of it. To win patience, he tried to go for walks and to read, but his thoughts were only of Minna. He went on crazily repeating her name over and over again. He was so abject in his love and worship of her name that he carried everywhere with him a volume of Lessing because the name of Minna occurred in it. And every day when he left the theatre he went a long distance out of his way so as to pass a mercery shop on whose signboard the five adored letters were written. He reproached himself for wasting time when she had bid him so urgently to work so as to make her famous. The naive vanity of her request touched him as a mark of her confidence in him. He resolved by way of fulfilling it to write a work which should be not only dedicated but consecrated to her. He could not have written any other at that time. Hardly had the scheme occurred to him than musical ideas rushed in upon him. It was like a flood of water accumulated in a reservoir for several months, until it should suddenly rush down, breaking all its dams. He did not leave his room for a week. 
Louisa left his dinner at the door, for he did not allow even her to enter. He wrote a quintet for clarinet and strings. The first movement was a poem of youthful hope and desire, the last a lover's joke, in which Jean-Christophe's wild humor peeped out. But the whole work was written for the sake of the second movement, the larghetto, in which Jean-Christophe had depicted an ardent and ingenuous little soul, which was, or was meant to be, a portrait of Minna. No one would have recognized it, least of all herself. But the great thing was that it was perfectly recognizable to himself, and he had a thrill of pleasure in the illusion of feeling that he had caught the essence of his beloved. No work had ever been so easily or happily written. It was an outlet for the excess of love which the parting had stored up in him, and at the same time his care for the work of art, the effort necessary to dominate and concentrate his passion into a beautiful and clear form, gave him a healthiness of mind, a balance in his faculties, which gave him a sort of physical delight, a sovereign enjoyment known to every creative artist. While he is creating, he escapes altogether from the slavery of desire and sorrow. He becomes then master in his turn, and all that gave him joy or suffering seems then to him to be only the fine play of his will, such moments are too short, for when they are done, he finds about him, more heavy than ever, the chains of reality. While Jean-Christophe was busy with his work, he hardly had time to think of his parting from Minna. He was living with her. Minna was no longer in Minna. She was in himself. But when he had finished, he found that he was alone, more alone than before, more weary, exhausted by the effort. He remembered that it was a fortnight since he had written to Minna, and that she had not replied. He wrote to her again, and this time he could not bring himself altogether to exercise the constraint which he had imposed on himself for the first letter. He reproached Minna jocularly, for he did not believe it himself, with having forgotten him. He scolded her for her laziness, and teased her affectionately, he spoke of his work with much mystery, so as to rouse her curiosity, and because he wished to keep it as a surprise for her when she returned, he described minutely the hat that he had bought, and he told how to carry out the little despot's orders, for he had taken all her commands literally, he did not go out at all, and said that he was ill as an excuse for refusing invitations. He did not add that he was even on bad terms with the Grand Duke because, in excess of zeal, he had refused to go to a party at the palace to which he had been invited. The whole letter was full of a careless joy, and conveyed those little secrets so dear to lovers. He imagined that Minna alone had the key to them, and thought himself very clever, because he had carefully replaced every word of love with words of friendship. After he had written, he felt comforted for a moment, First, because the letter had given him the illusion of conversation with his absent fair, but chiefly because he had no doubt but that Minna would reply to it at once. He was very patient for the three days which he had allowed for the post to take his letter to Minna and bring back her answer, but when the fourth day had passed, he began once more to find life difficult. He had no energy or interest in things, except during the hour before the post's arrival. Then he was trembling with impatience. 
he became superstitious and looked for the smallest sign, the crackling of the fire, a chance word, to give him an assurance that the letter would come. Once that hour was past, he would collapse again. No more work, no more walks. The only object of his existence was to wait for the next post, and all his energy was expended in finding strength to wait for so long. But when evening came, and all hope was gone for the day, then he was crushed. It seemed to him that he could never live until the morrow, and he would stay for hours, sitting at his table, without speaking or thinking, without even the power to go to bed, until some remnant of his will would take him off to it, and he would sleep heavily, haunted by stupid dreams, which made him think that the night would never end. This continual expectation became at length a physical torture, an actual illness. Jean-Christophe went so far as to suspect his father, his brother, even the postman, of having taken the letter and hidden it from him. He was racked with uneasiness. He never doubted Minna's fidelity for an instant. If she did not write, it must be because she was ill, dying, perhaps dead. Then he rushed to his pen and wrote a third letter, a few heart-rending lines, in which he had no more thought of guarding his feelings than of taking care with his spelling. The time for the post to go was drawing near. He had crossed out and smudged the sheet as he turned it over, dirtied the envelope as he closed it, no matter. He could not wait until the next post. He ran and hurled his letter into the box and waited in mortal agony. On the next night but one, he had a clear vision of Minna, ill, calling to him. He got up and was on the point of setting out on foot to go to her. But where? Where should he find her? On the fourth morning Minna's letter came at last, hardly a half-sheet, cold and stiff. Minna said that she did not understand what could have filled him with such stupid fears, that she was quite well, that she had no time to write, and begged him not to get so excited in future and not to write any more. Jean-Christophe was stunned. He never doubted Minna's sincerity. He blamed himself. He thought that Minna was justly annoyed by the impudent and absurd letters that he had written. He thought himself an idiot and beat at his head with his fist. But it was all in vain. He was forced to feel that Minna did not love him as much as he loved her. The days that followed were so mournful that it is impossible to describe them. Nothingness cannot be described. Deprived of the only boon that made living worthwhile for him, his letters to Minna, Jean-Christophe now only lived mechanically, and the only thing which interested him at all was when, in the evening, as he was going to bed, he ticked off on the calendar, like a schoolboy, one of the interminable days which lay between himself and Minna's return. The day of the return was past. They ought to have been at home a week. Feverish excitement had succeeded Jean Christophe's prostration. Minna had promised, when she left, to advise him of the day and hour of their arrival. He waited from moment to moment to go and meet them, and he tied himself up in a web of guesses as to the reasons for their delay. End of section 20